Lesson number 49, Surah Ali Imran, Ayah 121 to 143. وَإِذْ غَدَوْتَ مِنْ أَهْلِكَ And remember when you, O Prophet ﷺ, left your family in the morning. تُبَوِّئُ الْمُؤْمِنِينَ مَقَاعِدَ لِلْقِتَالِ To post the believers at their stations for the battle. وَاللَّهُ سَمِيعٌ عَلِيمٌ And Allah is hearing and knowing. This verse and the verses that come after until almost the end of the surah are all about the battle of Uhud. They're all related to the battle of Uhud. These verses were revealed after the battle. And in these verses there are many lessons that we learn that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala teaches us that can be learned from that battle. Allah says over here, وَإِذْ غَدَوْتَ وَإِذْ Meaning, وَذْكُرْ إِذْ And remember, recall the time when you set out very early. غَدَوْتَ is from the root letters غَيْن دَال وَاو From the word غُدُو or غَدْوَة which is to go or come by in the early morning. Basically, the word is used for early morning. Okay? The time that is after Fajr and before sunrise. So the time between Fajr and sunrise, that is the time of Ghudwa. And Ghada, Yaghdu is to go or come at this time. So Ghadawta, you set out very early in the morning. And that is how it was. For the Prophet ﷺ left for the battle of Uhud on the morning of Saturday, the 11th of Shawwal in the third year after Hijrah. When did he leave? On Saturday, the 11th of Shawwal, what year was it? The third year after Hijrah. And it was very early in the morning that he left for the battle. And he left from where? Min ahlika. Meaning you came out of your house and then you left for the battle. Min ahlik. Ahl is who? The family of a person. So the house where your family is, basically it is referring to the apartment of Aisha radiallahu anha, because that is where the Prophet ﷺ came out from, and that is when he left for the battle. And this happened after the Prophet ﷺ discussed with the companions as to whether or not they should go out of the city in order to fight the mushrikeen. And then once... He ﷺ went to his apartment, he made the decision, he put on his armor, he came out, and the Muslims left for the battle. So that is being mentioned over here, وَإِذْ غَدَوْتَ مِنْ أَهْلِكَ Now, the reason behind this battle, the battle of Uhud, what was the reason? The reason was that the Quraysh, the people of Makkah, they had suffered a great loss when they encountered the Muslims at the battle of Badr. You know that the first battle was which one? Badr. And then after that was the battle of Uhud. Now when the Muslims and the Mushrikeen fought at Badr, the Mushrikeen, they suffered a great blow. They lost 70 of their great men, including Abu Jahl. Okay? So 70 of their great men, their great leaders, were killed at that battle. Moreover, 70 more were taken as captives by the Muslims, for whose freedom they had to pay heavy ransom. So basically the Mushrikeen, they suffered greatly, at the battle of Badr. And which is the reason why they vowed to take revenge from the Muslims. And when they went back to Makkah, after the battle of Badr, they decided that they were going to attack the Muslims again in order to take revenge. Now the battle of Badr, do you know why that was fought? It was basically a trade caravan that belonged to the Mushrikeen of Makkah that was on its way back to Makkah from Asham. And it was so big that the prophets that were coming back to Mecca were almost 500,000 dinar. I mean 500,000 dinar is a big amount today. Imagine how much it was back at that time. So this was the profit that the mushrikeen were bringing in from their trade back into Mecca. And they were afraid that the Muslims were going to attack the caravan. Now why would the Muslims attack the caravan? Because the Muslims and the mushrikeen were at war. And when you're at war, you do these things anyway. Right? Because you want to inflict harm on the other. And besides the trade caravan, basically, when the Muslims left Mecca, they left their properties, their houses, their belongings in Mecca. So it is said that the mushrikeen gathered up whatever they could of the Muslims' belongings, sent them to Asham for trade, 
And then the profits that were obtained were basically from what? From the properties of the Muslims. So Muslims had every right over it. So this trade caravan, the Prophet ﷺ and the Muslims, they went out in order to get it. So the mushrikeen, they sent an army in order to protect the caravan. Now what happened? The caravan got to Mecca safely. But the army, they said, we're not going back without fighting the Muslims. They said, we're going to fight. So they went ahead and they fought the Muslims. When they fought, they suffered. When they went back home, the caravan had reached, but 140 of their men were basically gone. So they said, whatever profits we have gained, 500,000 dinar, we're going to use every penny in order to wage war against the Muslims. So the preparation began immediately, and they had 500,000 dinar at their hands to prepare with. At Badr, how many men from the mushrikeen went to attack the Muslims? A thousand. By the next year, at Uhud, how many men went? Three thousand men. Three thousand men. A heavily equipped, a well-equipped army. Three thousand men from Mecca and all to the surrounding tribes. They all came towards Medina in order to wage war against the Muslims, in order to take revenge. And when they came, they camped near Medina. Now when the Prophet ﷺ received this news, obviously he was the best leader. So he wasn't going to make a decision by himself. What did he do? He consulted the companions. He consulted the companions that what course of action should we take? Should we just stay in Medina and defend ourselves? That if the mushrikeen come and attack us, we just defend ourselves from within? Or should we go out of the city and face the mushrikeen and fight them outside of the city? What should be done? So the Prophet ﷺ consulted the companions. Now some companions, especially those who were young, who were very brave, who were very enthusiastic, and those who had lost the opportunity to participate in the battle of Badr, in the first battle. For whatever reason, they missed the opportunity. Because how many Muslims participate in the battle of Badr? 300, right? So only a few participated. The majority, they could not. Because basically it was not made mandatory. It wasn't intended that the Muslims would actually go for a battle. Many did not get a chance to participate in the battle. So when they saw another opportunity, they did not want to miss it. Because they knew the great rewards. So they urged the Prophet ﷺ that let's go out of Medina, let's face the mushrikeen and we will fight them. We are brave, we are strong, we are able, we will fight them. And we have to show them our strength. If we stay in Medina, they will think we are weak or we are afraid. On the other hand, the hypocrites... They were saying that no, we should stay in Medina, we should only defend ourselves, we should call them, if they come, we will fight. And if they don't come, then let them be. But this suggestion of theirs was based on what? On weakness. Okay, this was not out of sincerity for Allah and His Messenger, they just wanted to be safe. Because remember that they were very deceptive. The munafiqeen, they would like to please everyone. The Prophet ﷺ, the Muslims as well as the mushrikeen, everyone. So they were not sincere to the Muslims. Anyway, the Sahaba, many of them were urging the Prophet ﷺ that let's go out. Now the Prophet ﷺ, he got up and he went to the house of Aisha, her apartment. And when he went there, he put on his armor and he came out. What did that signify? That we are going to battle. We are going for war. We are going to leave Medina and face the enemy where the enemy is. We're not going to stay inside and defend ourselves. Now when this happened, the Sahaba who had been urging the Prophet ﷺ to go, they felt very guilty. Because they felt that they had you know, forced the Prophet ﷺ to accept their opinion. So they started apologizing and they said, you know, Prophet ﷺ, if you decide to stay, we will not oppose you. They felt bad. They felt as though they had forced him against his will. But the Prophet ﷺ, at that, he said that no. Once a Prophet puts on his armor, it does not befit him that he takes it off before fighting. So now we've made our decision and now we are going to go and we're going to face the enemy outside. So this entire incident, it happened when? Very early in the morning. Because as soon as the Prophet ﷺ put the armor on, that's it, the Muslims left. And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, وَإِذْ غَدَوْتَ مِنْ أَهْلِكَ When you set out from your family, from your household, very early in the morning, 
very early in the morning. Now when the Prophet ﷺ left, how many men accompanied him? A thousand men. So basically the Muslims were numbered how much? A thousand. In the previous battle, how many were they? Three hundred. And now there were a thousand. That's more than three times their previous numbers. Now imagine, if you are in a situation like this, would you be very excited and happy and brave and confident? Come on. Of course, you were so few before, now you're more than three times your number, you would be very confident. Right? Now, what happened that when the Muslims left, soon after, while they were still on their way to meet the Mushrik army, Abdullah bin Ubay, who was a munafiq, he appeared to be a Muslim, but in his heart he was not a believer at all. He accepted Islam only on the outward to gain the benefits of being a Muslim. He did, had no interest in the benefits of Islam. He had no interest in sacrificing for the religion. Nothing whatsoever. He made an excuse. And he said, The Prophet ﷺ did not listen to me. He did not accept my suggestion. Therefore, I'm going back. I'm not going to fight in the battle. He went back with 300 men. 300 people from the Muslim army, they left with who? with Abdullah bin Ubay, back to Medina. They said, we're not participating in the battle because the Prophet ﷺ did not listen to us. And other hypocrites, they made the excuse, لَوْ نَعْلَمُ قِتَالًا لَتَّبَعْنَاكُمْ If we knew how to fight, we would have followed you. Meaning, they made the excuse, we just don't know how to participate in battle. Like, if somebody asks you, can you iron this? And you say, oh, I don't know how to iron. Yeah, right. Of course you know. How difficult is it? Is it rocket science? It isn't. But when do we make such excuses? I don't know how to do this. Can you show me how to hold the knife? Can you show me how to peel the onion? Like seriously? It's not that difficult. Right? When do we make such excuses? When we don't want to do what we're supposed to do. Right? So the munafiqeen, they made this excuse, لَوْ نَعْلَمُ قِتَالًا لَتَّبَعْنَاكُمْ but Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, He tells us about their reality, that هُمْ لِلْكُفْرِ يَوْمَئِذٍ أَقْرَبُ مِنْهُمْ لِلْإِيمَانِ That on that day, they were closer to kufr than to belief. This was just a mere excuse. This ayah is mentioned later on. But the sahaba, they remained firm, and they were not affected by the retreat of Abdullah bin Ubay and his companions, and they remained firm until they reached Uhud, where the mushrikeen were. And when they reached Uhud, it's basically a mountain. If you visited Medina, I'm sure you've seen it. Okay, It's basically a mountainous area. And the Prophet ﷺ, he started appointing the companions at their designated spots. The Prophet ﷺ was a very wise man. A very wise man. He knew how to use the most scarce, the most little resources even in the most effective way. You know, the Prophet ﷺ was able to do wudu with very little water. He was able to take a bath with very, very little water. Why? Because he was very strategic in the way that he did ghusl, in the way that he took a bath. How would he take a bath? With a little bit of water, he would wash his hands first. With a little bit of water, he would wash his private parts. Then he would do wudu. Then he would dip his fingers in the water. And then he would make the scalp wet. And then he would take three handfuls of water and pour the water on the head so the entire head became wet. And then a little bit of water on the body to make the entire body wet. And right at the end he would wash the feet. With very little water he was able to take a bath. Likewise, with very few men he was able to face a huge army. We rely on numbers. But you know what? Numbers, they don't matter much. It's the strategy, it's the plan, it's the management that matters. You could have 24 hours, but if you have a very poor plan, you will accomplish nothing. But if you have two hours, a good strategy, a good plan, then you can accomplish a lot more. Isn't that so? If five days a week, for example, you're busy, you're going to school, you're going to work, you accomplish so much. Why? Because you have a thorough plan. On the weekend, if you have nothing to do, you have no class to attend, you're just at home, then what happens? The next thing you know, it is Sunday night, and you're running 
to complete your chores, to do the laundry, to finish your homework, to do this, to do that. What's missing? The time? No. What's missing? The plan, the strategy. So the Prophet ﷺ, he only had 700 men. Very little resources. So in order to fight the enemy, in order to be victorious, what did he do? He didn't just have a mob of angry people, of emotional people. No, he had a group of men whom he appointed at their designated spots. From where they were to fight. From where they were to defend. And that is what is mentioned over here. You were appointing the believers where maqa'ida lil on their positions, on their stations for the battle. And it's a very important lesson that we learn from the life of the Prophet ﷺ. Strategy and planning. The word tubawwi'u is from the root letters ba, waw, hamza. And bawwa'a yubawwi'u is to settle someone, to provide them accommodation, to put up something somewhere. In the hadith, the Prophet ﷺ said, مَنْ كَذَبَ عَلَيَّ مُتَعَمِّدًا فَلْيَتَبَوَّأْ مَقْعَدَهُ مِنَ النَّارِ That whoever lies against me deliberately, meaning fabricates a statement and says that I have said it, then such a person should, فَلْيَتَبَوَّأْ He should make his residence. Where? In the fire. So, تُبَوِّئُ You were appointing spots. You were designating. You were settling. Who? The believers. Where? Maqa'ida lil qital. Maqa'id is the plural of maqad. From the root letters qaf aindal. And qa'ada is to sit. Qa'ada is to sit. And maqad, it is the place of sitting. It is the place of sitting. Now when a person is sitting on a chair, at a place where there are very few chairs, how will that person sit on his chair? How? He will not leave that chair. Because God forbid, if he leaves it, he's lost his spot. Okay? Likewise it happens that sometimes we're sitting. Okay? And we just want to remain sitting. And we become so lazy that we don't want to get up. And we wish if there was a remote for everything in the world. Right? Or if we had a person who could just do everything that we're telling him to do. Because we don't want to move. The person who's sitting does not move that much. Whereas a person who's standing, does he move more? Yes, he does. But when a person is sitting, then he's just sitting and he's not moving. Now maqa'id, over here, it refers to the battle posts the certain spots where the Prophet ﷺ assigned the men, that this is where you have to be. It doesn't mean that he told them, now you sit here and don't move. Because you don't sit in battle. Okay? The reason why this word has been used is to show that they were instructed to remain on their spots, in their designated areas. And it's understood that a person who is in battle, he is going to move. He is going to go forwards, he is going to go backwards, perhaps sideways. That's going to happen. But he has to remain within the designated area. So the Prophet ﷺ appointed for the believers their designated areas. Why? Lil For the battle, meaning for fighting the enemy. Wallahu sami'un alim, and Allah is hearing and knowing. Meaning He heard the instructions that you gave to the believers, O Prophet ﷺ. And alim, He is knowing, He knows exactly what happened. He knows who listened and who did not, who made a mistake and who abided by the rules. He knows exactly what happened. You know, what people said, what people did, what course of action they took. He knows about all of the circumstances. Wallahu sami'un alim. Now when the Prophet ﷺ, he settled the believers on their spots, there was a group of 50 archers who were appointed at a small hillock under the leadership of Abdullah bin Jubair. Okay, who was the companion? Abdullah bin Jubair. He was appointed as the leader. And 50 archers, who are archers? People who shoot arrows. Okay? So they were appointed at that hillock. And the Prophet ﷺ told them that no matter what happens, no matter what happens, whether we live or we die, the Muslims in the battle, you are not moving from your spot until you are told. 
they were given this clear instruction that you're not moving until you are told to move. Okay? And this hillock, basically the Prophet ﷺ appointed those men over there. Why? In order to defend the Muslim army from the back. So that the mushrikeen could not come from behind and attack them. They would only be able to fight the Muslims from one side. Alright? So basically these 50 men were defending, they were protecting the army. Okay? Now what happened? Very soon, the battle began. The battle began, and because of the great war plan, the great war strategy the Prophet ﷺ had, very quickly the Muslims were victorious over the mushrikeen. So much so that the mushrikeen, they started running away from the battlefield. They started fleeing the battlefield. The army became disorganized, disunited, and they started running away in order to save their lives. Now when this happens, that means that those who are running have lost. Okay? And those who have remained, they have won. So the Muslim army, the Muslims, they were clearly victorious. The mushrikeen were clearly defeated. And this is the reason why the Muslims who were over there in the battlefield, they started collecting the war booty, okay? Which marked their victory, okay? They collected war booty, which marked their victory. Now the Muslims, the 50 men who were at the hillock, they're watching the whole scene, that the mushrikeen are running away. And the Muslims are here. Come on, let's go celebrate. Right? Let's go celebrate. Let's join our brothers. We're victorious. I mean, obviously when you see someone who has won the race, who has won the competition, you don't remain sitting at your seat. What do you do? You run to the field. Right? In all of these matches, what happens? When one team wins, what happens to the rest of the team members, to their coaches and all of the cameramen and all of the people who are there to, you know, the media coverage and everything, what do they do? They remain sitting on their spots? No. They run to the field, the whole scene changes. So likewise, the Muslims who were appointed at that hillock, they started to leave. Their leader, Abdullah bin Jubair, he reminded them that, look, the Prophet ﷺ told us not to move. But they insisted that, no, we are victorious. The battle's over. The mushrikeen are running away. Khalid bin Walid is gone. Ikrimah bin Abi Jahl, he's gone. All of these men are gone. Their women are running away. They're gone. So we are victorious. So they insisted and they left. Now on the side of the mushrikeen, there were very intelligent men, such as Khalid bin Walid, radiyallahu anhu by the way. And Ikrimah bin Abi Jahl, again radiyallahu anhu by the way, because both later accepted Islam. When they saw that the Muslims were unprotected, and all of them are busy, celebrating, collecting the booty, they're happy, they're congratulating one another, what happened? They collected their men very quickly and they came from the side of the hillock and they attacked the Muslims. And the Muslims were not ready for that attack. They got trapped basically. And 70 Muslims died at this point. 70 Muslims were martyred. Whatever Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala had decreed in His great wisdom happened. The Prophet ﷺ was injured, severely wounded. To the point that his wounds, they bled so much that the bleeding was not stopping. And it is reported in Bukhari that Fatima radiallahu anha, she was burning straw mat. The ashes, she was filling up the wounds of the Prophet ﷺ with those ashes to stop the bleeding. But yet the bleeding would not stop. Seventy Muslims were martyred. So many were wounded. And the Prophet ﷺ and the Muslims, they had to climb up on the mountains in order to save themselves. So a great victory turned into a horrible defeat. Something that was going to bring them so much happiness turned into apparently a huge disaster. It was a great test. A great test. But all of these verses, they teach us many lessons. Because for a believer, really there is no failure in life if he has learned a lesson from it. It may be a very difficult experience, but if he learns a lesson from it and does not repeat that mistake again, then remember, it was not a failure. It was just a big learning experience. Yes, you regret it. Yes, you feel horrible about it, but it's a great learning experience. And this is exactly what these ayat teach us.
Now, when we fail at something, what do we do? We always look back and we reflect on what we did, what mistake we made. And as we think about what went wrong and what foolish decisions we made and what wrong steps we took, how do we feel? Angry, upset, right? We feel foolish, we feel guilty, we keep blaming ourselves, we keep yelling at ourselves, or we start fighting with other people, right? We start blaming each other. It was his fault, her fault. But does that help? It doesn't help. What is helpful in this situation? That you reflect and then you think about the lessons that you can take. So that in the future, you can do better. You can perform better. So in these ayat basically, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is comforting the Prophet ﷺ that, O oh Prophet, you did not fall short in your effort, in your planning, in your strategy. No, you left early in the morning, you appointed the believers on their spots, you gave them clear instructions, you did the best that you could. And Allah heard everything, Allah knows everything. You did not fall short in your part. You did your best. So the Prophet ﷺ is being reminded of that. Now there are many lessons that can be learned from the incident, from the whole battle of Uhud, but inshallah we will learn them as we study the verses. But from this verse in particular, what are some of the lessons that we learn? What do we learn from وَإِذْ غَدَوْتَ You set out early in the morning. What lesson do we learn from that? You set out early in the morning. What does that teach us? That when you have something important to do, please don't start it on Sunday morning at 11 a.m. or at 1 p.m. Why? Because then it will be lunchtime. And then it will be tea time. And then it will be going out to the grocery store time. And then it will be time to do the laundry. You're never going to get your work done. What is the best time to do your work? Early morning. This is the sunnah of the Prophet ﷺ. Imagine, so early in the morning, before even the sun rose completely, before even the day completely set in, he was out and about. He was out. He had already had the discussion. He had already made the decision. And they were out for the battle. So start early in the morning. Because that is the time of barakah. It's the time of blessing. And it is also the sunnah of the Prophet ﷺ. What do we learn from? Min ahlika. وَإِذْ غَدَوْتَ مِنْ أَهْلِكَ You left your family and you went for a battle. You left so early in the morning and Allah was watching you. What does that teach us? What's the lesson that we learn over here? That Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is very appreciative of the sacrifices that we make in His way. Allah notices every sacrifice that we make in His path. Other people may not even know. Or they may know, but they may not acknowledge. Or they may acknowledge, but they may not appreciate the way they should. The Prophet ﷺ left his family. And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala mentions that in the Qur'an, that you had to leave your family to go for battle. Is that something easy to do? No. Is it easy to come? to a class on Saturday morning when your brother is asleep and your sister is still in her pajamas and there you are in your uniform with your bag, another work day. Is that easy? It's not easy. But this is a sacrifice you're making in whose way? In the way of Allah. And who will appreciate? Allah will appreciate. وَإِذْ غَدَوْتَ مِنْ أَهْلِكَ Then we also learn in this ayah that when the Prophet ﷺ put in so much effort, he sacrificed. He left early. He left his family for the sake of the deen. Then what about us? Should we not do the same thing? Should we not follow in his footsteps and work hard and study hard and do our best in whatever that we do for the benefit of the deen? If the Prophet ﷺ worked so hard, then we ought to work harder. Another lesson we learn over here is about the importance of planning. 
The Prophet ﷺ appointed the people at their designated spots, told them what they were supposed to do and where, gave them clear instructions. You know, everything was laid out clearly. And this is something that is important if we want to be successful. But what do we think? That once I have a thousand dollars, then I can do this. Once I have fifty thousand dollars, then I can do this. Once I have ten people to work for me, once I have a maid, and I can afford a, a nanny, and I can afford this, and I can afford that, then I will do this. Don't wait. Don't wait for your resources to increase. Do whatever that you can with what you have. But plan effectively. Another important lesson we learn here, you know, many people they say that once I'm done school, once I'm done work, once I'm done having my kid, once I'm done getting married, then I will study the Qur'an. But what happens when you're done school? Then you have to work. What happens when you're done one work? Then you have to work more. What happens when you have a kid? Then you have to look after the kid. What happens when you get married? Then you have to do other work. Right? So something or the other will always happen in life. You will never have that perfect time, you know, where all time is me time and you can do whatever you want. No, you'll never find that in life. So with whatever resources, whatever capacity that you have, you have to do the best that you can. All that is needed is planning. All that is needed is a schedule, strategy. And that will make your work much more effective. You know, there are people who have four children, six children, and they're doing so much. And we think, oh, I don't even have a kid. How do they do this? How do they do that? It's possible. It's just about living an organized life. Living an organized life. Organization and management is something that is very, very important. You know, this is something that will either make you successful or it will make you a total loser in life. Its absence will make you a total loser in life. So pay attention to this. You know, many times parents, they emphasize, have a schedule, have a routine. But we have no schedule, no routine. One day we're waking up at 10.30, another day we're waking up at 7.30, another day we're waking up at 9. No schedule, no routine, no habits, no accomplishments. If you want to be successful in life, then plan. Failing to plan is planning to fail. إِذْ هَمَّ الطَّائِفَتَانِ مِنْكُمْ أَنْ تَفْشَلَ Then Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala reminds the Muslims of another thing that happened in that battle. إِذْ هَمَّتْ When it intended. هَمَّتْ from the root letters هَا مِيمِيمِ ميم, from the word هَمْ which is intention. And this word is used in two ways. One, it is used for worry and concern that when a person is undecided, he's worried, should I do it, should I not do it? And then this word ham is also used for azm, for firm intention, for determination, for resolution, that when a person has resolved to do something, it's used in both ways. Over here, hammat is being used in the meaning of azm, that when they had intended. Okay? Who ta'ifatani, two groups, the plural of the word ta'ifa. Two groups, men come from you. You refers to the believers. So when two groups from among you had intended, or not really had determined, but rather they were almost about to, they were thinking of. Over here, hum is in the first meaning. Okay, not in the second meaning, but in the first meaning, which is to be anxious, to be worried, to be in that state of indecisiveness. Should I or should I not? So they were thinking about what? Antapshala. That they would lose courage. They had almost given up. They had almost despaired. Tafshala from the root letters fashi lam and fashal is to be cowardly, to become weak, to lose courage, to lose heart. So two groups from among the believers had almost lost courage. What happened? Remember when 300 men, they left the Prophet ﷺ under Abdullah bin Ubay and went back to Medina. Then... Two clans of Banu Salama from the tribe of Khazraj and Banu Haritha from the tribe of Aus. Okay, so which clans? Banu Salama from the tribe of Khazraj and Banu Haritha from the tribe of Aus. These two clans, okay, and a clan is a smaller group within a tribe. Okay, they also almost decided to return. 
When they saw that Abdullah bin Ubay was leaving with 300 men, they almost gave up. They're like, we're going in the mouth of death. We're going there to kill ourselves. How can 700 people face an army of 3,000? It's impossible. We're not going to win. We are going to lose. So they were almost losing courage and they were on their way back to Medina along with Abdullah bin Ubay and his companions. But what happened? Wallahu waliyuhuma. But Allah was wali of them too. Allah was their wali. He was their guardian. He was their protector. And so He did not let them lose heart. He did not let them give up. He did not let them go back. Rather, He gave them confidence. He gave them courage. He gave them determination. So they resolved to stay with the Prophet ﷺ and go with Him for battle. But notice what Allah says over here. Allah was their wali. Now remember that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is the wali. He is a friend, the guardian, the protector of all the believers. Okay? Meaning general wilaya. General protection, general friendship. Every believer, you know, he says, I believe in Allah, I love Allah, I trust on Him. And Allah also helps him. Okay? But this is at a general level, at a common level. Okay? And this is when Allah plans for a believer, gives him reward for the good that he does, saves him from hardship, from trouble. But then there is wilaya khasa, a special kind of friendship with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And that is given to who? Those who have a stronger connection with Allah. So then what happens? When they are in difficulty, then Allah helps them even more than an ordinary believer is helped. Then when they are in difficulty, Allah gives them more sabr than an average person would have at a time of difficulty. Do you see what I mean? So, wallahu waliyyuhuma. You see, some people, they lost heart. They went back. And others, they were about to. But Allah gave them courage. They were about to give up. But Allah saved them. Allah did not let them slip. Allah did not let them slip. He did not let them fall. Why? Because of the strong bond. Because of the strong friendship that they have with their Lord. And this is the benefit of having Allah as your friend, as your close friend. Because you're a human being. You have less knowledge. There will be times when your enemy can become very strong. Shaitan can be very strong. Other people can influence you. And you're about to make a very bad decision in life. But Allah does not let you make that decision. Allah does not let that plan carry through. And then when you look back, you say, I don't know what happened. Alhamdulillah, Allah saved me. I'm so glad I didn't do this. I'm so glad I did this. Allah protected me. Allah saved me. You know, sometimes there are young people and they wish they could do wrong things. Right? They wish they could also date. They wish they could also, you know, drink alcohol or do drugs or dress in a particular way or, or go to a particular place and party like other people do. They wish. But their dad is so strict. And their mom, wow, she's got some eyes. And their older brother, wow, he's got some iman. Right? And their younger sister, you know, she's just telling everything to the parents. So even though this person may have a strong desire to do something wrong, Allah does not let them. Allah does not give them an opportunity. Allah does not give them a chance. And then later on when they grow older, like Alhamdulillah, Allah saved me. As much as I hated my sister, as much as I hated my mom, I'm so glad that they kept the rules that they kept for me. You know the other day, I was talking to someone who did the course a few years back. And they're like, you know, because her sister is doing the course right now, she's like, you know, these guys, their course is so easy. You know, we had to do this and we had to do that and we had to do this. I'm like, yeah, you remember how much you used to complain? She's like, yeah, but it was good. I'm like, not at that time. So it happens with us that sometimes we want to do something wrong or we don't want to do good. Like, for example, a young person, they decide, it's time for Maghrib, I'm not going to bother praying. I'm sitting on the computer, I'm just going to work. And then right at that time, their mom walks in the door. They're like, have you prayed? Can't make an excuse right now, so I have to get up and pray. So, who saved you? Allah saved you, be grateful for that. 
that your heart, you wanted to disobey. But Allah loves you so much that He saved you, He protected you. Wallahu waliyuhuma. And if Allah has protected someone in this way, then He should really be grateful. And you don't know, if you are not grateful for this, Allah might take that protection away from you. Because it happens with some people who take this for granted. Eventually a time comes when that protection is lifted from them. The parents are not there, the father is not there, the brother is not there, the sister is not there. Now you're on your own. You can slip, you can err, you can fall, you can make the worst mistakes. But Allah won't save you. So if Allah is saving us, let's be grateful. Wallahu waliyyuhuma. Allah says, وَعَلَى اللَّهِ And upon Allah, فَلْيَتَوَكَّلِ الْمُؤْمِنُونَ Should the believers rely? The believers, they must فَلْيَتَوَكَّلِ They must, they should rely upon who? Upon Allah and Allah alone. What is this tawakkul? Tawakkul is from waw kaflam. It is to have true and sincere trust upon who? Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. When you trust on someone, what does it mean? You rely on them. You depend on them. That you expect them to do everything for you. Right? You rely on them for your success. You rely on them for your safety. And we think this is what tawakkul is. Just do nothing. Sit like that. And expect Allah to do everything. And we say, oh Allah can do anything. Right? And if somebody says, no but brother or sister, you should do something too. We say, what? Allah can't do it? Of course Allah can do it. Yes, Allah can do it. Good, you're relying upon Him. But this is an incomplete definition of tawakkul. Tawakkul is not just to rely upon Allah. It is to have true and sincere trust upon Allah in attaining some benefit and ridding of some harm. That you want to attain some benefit, you want to get hold of something good, or you want to protect yourself from some harm. So you trust, you rely upon who? Upon Allah. And you do all of this while holding on to Him firmly. What does that mean, holding on to Him firmly? That you are also praying to Him, you're begging Him, you're remembering Him, you're asking Him. You're doing something that will please Him so that His help will come. You're staying away from anything that will upset Allah so that His help is not averted from you. So you hold on to Him firmly. And you also adopt the means that Allah has made available to you. Four things in tawakkul. What are they? First of all, to have true and sincere trust upon Allah. Secondly, in attaining some benefit or ridding of some harm. Thirdly, while holding on to him firmly. And fourthly, adopting the means that he has made available to you. So in other words, tawakkul is what? That you do your best, you do your part, you do whatever that is within your capacity, and you rely upon Allah for success. Okay? And when a person works, strives hard with this mindset, then you know what? He will be a hard worker. He won't be lazy. He won't be just sitting back doing nothing. No, he will be a hard worker. Truth tawakkul means you're working really hard. The Prophet ﷺ trusted on Allah. And what did he do? With 700 people, he went for battle. He will be more confident. He will be calm. Because he is expecting help from Allah. He is relying upon Allah for success, not upon his resources. But if we have less resources, limited capacity, then we start to panic. How is it going to happen? It's impossible. No way. This, that, you know, excuses and panic. But the one who has tawakkul on Allah, he will not panic. He will be calm. He will be confident. He will do his best. He will work hard. And then Allah's help will come. And if despite Allah's help, something goes wrong, then again, a person does not become depressed. Why? Because he knows that there is some wisdom as to why this happened. So Allah says, وَعَلَى اللَّهِ فَلْيَتَوَكَّلِ الْمُؤْمِنُونَ Upon Allah, should the believers rely, they must rely upon Him. And notice, mu'minun, meaning as believers, we have to rely upon Allah. If we don't rely on Allah, then the iman is weak. The more a person relies on Allah, the stronger his iman is. The less a person relies on Allah, the weaker his iman is.
So it's a requirement of iman to trust upon who? Upon Allah. Not on your resources, not on your work, not on your effort, not on your friends, not on your money, but on who? On Allah. You know, tawakkul is something that we actually experience. Okay, we actually experience this. Have you ever experienced this feeling where you go to a store and you intend to only perhaps window shop, but then you see one thing and then you see another thing and then you see another thing and you start picking up, picking up, picking up, picking up. And then by the time you get to the cash, there's like, you know, you have a lot of stuff and, you know, you put your hand on your bag and you're like, yeah, I have my wallet. Right? And you're worried that it's going to be a lot of money, but then you open your wallet and you see, oh, yeah, I have my card. Hmm? So when you see that card, when you know that, okay, you don't have cash, but you have your card and that card works, okay, then you are able to pick up more stuff. Right? You are able to spend more time in the store picking and choosing and getting whatever you want. And when you're standing at the cash, you're not freaking out. You're not embarrassed. Rather, you are happy and excited. And you have that sense of relief that, yeah, my card's here. And so happy that, yeah, this is my husband's. You know, my husband's going to pay for it. Right? It's not going out of my account, it's going out of his account. Now you have that greater sense of relief. So we experience this tawakkul. But true tawakkul is upon who? Upon Allah. Not on your wallet, not on your card, not on your husband, not on your children, not on your work, but on Allah. That you do your best, but at the end, you say, Oh Allah, make this happen. Oh Allah, please help me. This is what tawakkul is. So, وَعَلَى اللَّهِ فَلْيَتَوَكَّلِ الْمُؤْمِنُونَ What lessons do we learn in this ayah? First of all, we learn that a person gets influenced by the people who are around him. You may have very strong iman, you may have a very good work ethic, you may be an A student, you may be a very hard-working person, but if you're sitting with the person who is very lazy, and they're talking, and playing one game after the other, and then chatting on the phone, then what happens? You're like, why do I live such a difficult life? You know, they can relax, I can also relax. They can sit down and watch TV. I can do it too. I deserve it more. Correct? Does it happen? That your company influences you. If you are with hardworking people, then how will you work? Good. But if you are with lazy people, dishonest people, then what kind of work ethic will you have? Bad. Right? If your friends are all nerds, then you will be similar. And if your friends don't care about studies, then you will not care about them either. You know, some people are so particular. The assignment is due tomorrow. Have you done it? Have you done it? Yes, I've done it. I have only one question left. I have one page left. Okay, do it quickly. Let me know when you're done. These people, you know, the friends, they get excited about the work they're doing and together they do the work. And those people who are not interested in the work, they're like, did you do the lesson? No, me too. I didn't do it either. Happens, right? And then if you're sitting in a group where five people have not done their lesson, and you're the only one who does their lesson seven times, the next day you say, why should I bother? She can get away with it, I can get away with it too. Right? It happens, right? So then what's the solution? Stick to people who work hard. You know one of the scholars, Ibn al-Jawzi, he said, I seek refuge with Allah from people who have nothing better to do in life. From people who are, you know, Urdu, they say the word farigh. Okay? Like who have nothing to do, who are free, they have no obligations or they have no work to do. Even if they do have work to do, they don't bother doing it. They're just wasting their time. He said, I seek refuge with Allah from the company of such people. You know, like we seek refuge with Allah from magic and from evil eye and from the hasad of other people and from, you know, a bad death and from shaitan and from, you know, difficult things in life, he would seek refuge with Allah from the company of such people. Because if you sit with such people, then their bad habits will rub off on you. Pray to Allah 
for good company, for people who work hard, because they will influence you. She's mentioning about the wakul, about Sheikh Ahmad Idat, that when he would debate with people of various religions on the topics of religion, he would be asked many questions. And he said that many times it happens that questions are asked and I don't know the answer. But I stand up relying upon Allah and then you know, my mind just starts working. One thing after the other starts coming into the head. So relying upon Allah. So anyway, we see that the Sahaba, the companions who were with the Prophet ﷺ, who went out with him for battle, when they saw some people retreating, they also wanted to go back. So it doesn't matter how strong your iman is. It doesn't matter, you know, how good of a worker you are. You know, what excellent marks you've had all your life. It doesn't matter. If you keep company with lazy people, you're going to become lazy too. Their bad habits will rub off on you. Then we also learn in this ayah that a believer may feel coward at some point in time, but only temporarily. They felt weak for some time. But then Allah was their wali and Allah saved them. A hadith tells us the Prophet ﷺ was asked that can a believer be a coward? He said yes. He said can a believer be a bakhil, meaning stingy? He said yeah, possible. Liar? No. A believer cannot be a liar. So it's possible that at times you feel weak, you feel that you have no courage, no strength to continue, but it should only be a temporary phase. Okay, let's listen to the recitation of these verses. وَإِذْ غَدَوْتَ مِنْ أَهْلِكَ تُبَوِّئُ الْمُؤْمِنِينَ مَقَاعِدَ لِلْقِتَالِ وَاللَّهُ سَمِيعٌ عَلِيمٌ إِذْ هَمَّ الطَّائِفَتَانِ مِنْكُمْ أَنْ تَفْشَلَا وَاللَّهُ وَلِيُّهُمَا وَعَلَى اللَّهِ فَلْيَتَوَكَّلِ الْمُؤْمِنُونَ 